What does it take to win? Hosted by track record founders David Carey and Scott Gardner. Ready again. Transforming your track record with leadership coaching. Inspired by elite performance from sports and business. On your arms. Side track from leading performers in sports and business to find out what does it take to win. Hello and welcome to Track Records. What does it take to win podcast? Each time we are asking elite performers from sport, business and now the military, uh, what does it take to win? Uh, and today we have a very special guest who is going to show us an incredible insight into their world. Scott, who have we got? David, today we've got John White. John is a former captain uh, in the Royal Marines. He's truly an inspirational guy. He's mixing a career dealing with telling his story from military, from tours of Afghanistan, in sport, kayaking over crazy long distances, uh, in business, uh, coaching and, and, and consulting and, and helping people to be better. He's also studying a psychology degree. Um, but his story, David, is, is so unique that before you ask the first question, I'm going to ask John just to give us a brief intro to our listeners in terms of um, his life. Okay, thank you, Scott and David. I joined the Royal Marines as a 19-year-old and managed to get commissioned as an officer then and passed out of training at 20 years of age and then started my career. Eight years into that career, I was on my second tour in Afghanistan and halfway through that tour, stood on a bomb and lost both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. That was nine years ago. And my life since, there was clearly the initial physical rehabilitation. And then I was lucky enough to get married, have children, so building a family, home. And I needed to think about what life was going to be afterwards. And that was what uh, work I was going to do, what was going to fulfil me. And um, I've gone into uh, business consulting, coaching and uh, also spend a lot of time in a boat because I still enjoy physical challenges and kayaking is the way I do that. Wow. So I'm just going to open up and I'm going to get straight down to it. What are you most proud of? <laughs> Might sound corny, but if you've been there, you know two kids, uh, Pippa and George. They're, George is six now, Pippa's four. And I think at the moment they're growing up to be good little kids and I absolutely love them to bits and really uh, yeah I'm not just proud of them but I'm motivated by them as well mm. in what way um I've always I was lucky enough to have I think really great parenting and I've always put huge emphasis on the importance of good parenting and I think that's important for me to give to them and there's there's lots of things you know there's the bit about showing them uh, good work ethic and going out and working there's a bit about nurturing them and hopefully inspiring them and giving them a good set of uh, values that they can launch their lives from mm. wow i i can certainly uh, resonate with that one that that is for sure so you've had this most incredible um series of 
um, events and, and things that have happened to you. It, I mean, it sounds like a film already. Um, and if, if you kind of go step by step through that journey, we talk a lot about confidence and, and that kind of credible confidence, confidence that, that you need in order to kind of um, uh, be fulfilled, to achieve the things that you ultimately want to to achieve and, and fulfill your purpose and passion and, and potential and all that kind of thing. Um, so talk to us a little bit about John 10 years ago. What, what was, what was the thing that, that you had confidence in? What were, what were you aspiring towards and what were you looking to achieve? So this time 10 years ago, actually, um, I was going through a little bit of a difficult time uh, in my career in the Marines. Funny, I've never been asked um, about this before, but at that period, yeah, I just, for the first time in a long time, I just failed a, a specialisation course and um, had a new boss that I, I wasn't rubbing well with. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a challenging time. However, at that point, uh, we knew that in nine months' time, we were going to be deploying to Afghanistan. And that was starting to really become our focus. And I had a, a troop of 30 men at that stage. And the reports that were coming back from the units that were in the town where we were going sanging were pretty horrendous. And so really that was just drawing all of our attention. And it was about, okay, going to this tour, got to make sure we are well prepared for it. But alongside that, I also had... Um, other aspirations to I made a decision that I wanted to try and join the UK Special Forces and so I was starting to prepare myself for that as well and you know, two weeks before I deployed to Afghanistan in 2010 I was doing a what we call an aptitude so one week selection course which I'd passed the idea is from there you go on and have a go at the the full special forces selection mm. and uh, that was the plan to come back from the tour spend a couple of months um getting fit again and going on that yeah so so in that moment in time 10 years ago that that was your kind of what we would call a win that was that was the aspiration that you had in your mind that that you wanted to achieve for you personally within your career mm. and and what would be your purpose like why was that really important to you like why were you driven and again thinking back what did you believe in what was that 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 ultimate for you yeah it's really interesting i think i was, was 26 at the time and so i think that's a time when uh, certainly young men are starting to maybe have a bit of change in motivation and I was still quite ego driven and if you look at the the special forces selection side I think there was a big part of that that was quite ego driven it was about me wanting to be at the pinnacle of my career and go and do the ultimate thing but if you come back to the operational focus that was about getting all of my men through that alive and um, getting them back safely and making sure that uh, we looked after each other there. And interestingly, that motivation changed when I got to Afghanistan because you suddenly realised it wasn't just about us, it was about the people who lived in Afghanistan. And uh, very soon you realised that you did have a job there, which was to you know, protect and further the lives of um, plenty of innocent people, you know, young children, women, 
um, that were very vulnerable and our job was to try and make their lives a little bit safer. Hmm. And and was that not in your mind of preparation before you got there? I don't think so. I don't think it was. And and was it an explicit moment in your mind or was it a collective moment that, that you all thought, actually, this is the point? I'm not sure. I think... It was one of those things that sort of dawned over a matter of weeks once you start going out on patrols and you see what's going on and and you know, a bunch of guys between the ages of 19 and um, I guess the oldest guy in the troop was in his mid-30s by then. So um, a few children dotted mm. about and you know, so a few fathers there and all of a sudden there's, they're all starting to make that connection. Well, hang on. That little girl over there is about the same age as my little girl. Yeah. Um, and instinct starts to kick in, I think, about protecting people. And and I think having that, um, that as a value really helps you in difficult situations, keep you on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Mm. If, if you could, if I could give you three words to describe that John who's heading off... 30 men under command, but still a bit ego-driven. That might be one of your words, but don't. <laughs> um, but three words to describe that, John, 10 years ago that you're giving us such a an insight into. I want to say worried. I'm not sure if that's quite the right word. Um there's something there about being very aware of the yeah. danger that mm. we were going in. Yeah. Um, there was also confidence. Mm -hmm. There was genuine confidence around um, my ability to do my role at that time and the team that I had around me. I had a really good troop. So I was in charge of a thing called a reconnaissance troop. And basically within a unit of 600 guys... Um, there's, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 troops in the unit. I'm the only troop in that unit that gets to run my own selection course and choose what men are under my command. Oh, wow. So I get the pick of the bunch. Um, so I knew I had good guys around me, so there was confidence around that. And then the next thing, I, I don't know how to describe it in a word, I'm sorry. Um, there's that bit about proving yourself so although I'd been on operations before um, my previous operation had been mainly on Kandahar Air Base which is this effectively small town in the middle of the desert mm. in southern Afghanistan and you know actually you're pretty safe there and this is when you're going on operations like this where we're going to now is this is it this is the real thing um, people will die on this you're likely to get shot at you're likely to face bombs all of these things and you've got to come back and not be a coward you've got to come back with your reputation intact and as much as you can think about it until you're in that moment you never quite know how you're going to react and actually there's some people who tell you when you're in that moment time and time again they react differently over time. You know, mm. for the first couple of tours in Afghanistan, they were absolutely fine. But come their third or fourth tour, um, all of a sudden, they weren't quite so bulletproof mm. as they were before. 
Um, and so, yeah, there's there's that whole thing of that comes back to the ego side of it. Mm. And and I'm interested in that confidence aspect. You, you spoke about the 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 capability that you had. You you felt that you were up for it and and felt that you were ready for it. Was there anything else that you did uh, in terms of kind of exploring and a, a willingness to explore the worst case scenario? Uh, was was there anything that you did to kind of almost prepare yourself for the worst possible outcome? Yeah, absolutely. There was something about this tour, you know, going back to what I said about the knowing, getting the reports back from in theatre. And it was just a real, there was nothing naive about the way we were going into it. And... On the previous tour, I sorted out my will, um, and that was it. Whereas this time, it was going to a will, and then I went through and wrote a series of death letters to you know close friends and family, probably half a dozen or so um, different death letters, and a set of instructions for funeral, stuff like that. And I went back, did it in my office quietly. Each letter that I wrote, printed checked it, deleted the file, put in an envelope, and then they all went in one envelope and went to my um, godparents. So my godfather, was he was also serving in the Marines at the time. Um, so I went and had a conversation with them and said, look, if anything happens, here are the instructions. Um, they were slightly different from normal in that um, I hadn't been dating my girlfriend at the time, Bex, that long but we kind of knew it was quite serious. And I realised that if anything happened to me, um, because we weren't married and related, potentially she could be left out of the loop. Mm. And so what I did is made her my next to king and then gave in the instructions um, for my godfather, who's still very close friends with my mum, to you know go and brief my mum and all of this sort of stuff. So I really thought about making sure that everyone was dealt with properly mm. um, and everyone would be informed in the way they needed to be and at the time my mum was living with me because my parents had separated and I remember thinking the last thing I want is a complete stranger knocking on her door and giving her this kind of news so hence why um, gave that job to my godparents yeah. so um, I, I just heard a story about Alfred Hitchcock every time he um, created a film you would have a blue script and a green script. And the blue script was a series of events and what you needed and, and what was happening through the scene. Uh, the blue script was actually how he wanted the audience to feel. Mm. And there was like that absolute connection. So this is what's happening, but this is how I want the audience to feel. Uh, and I got the sense there that you gave me the blue script. Yeah. Like, what's the green script? Like, what? how did that series of events... Like, how did it affect you? Yeah, well, I mean, when I was writing those letters, I was in floods of tears. I was literally, you know, living the moment of, you know, if they're having to read this, I was right there in their shoes as best you can be. Um, and I remember, because at the time, the rest of the unit were all on pre-operational leave, and I'm sitting there in this office on my own and all of a sudden a cleaner walks in and I'm sitting there in floods of tears writing these letters and all embarrassed and she just apologised and walked out. 
but you know it was I don't know what the long effect was but yeah that was the emotional effect in the moment and I just think it was a good thing to have done just to have everything that you could prepare prepared and there's something about that um, in everything that you then did from then on just knowing that you've done every little bit of preparation you can before you step out of the the safety of whatever um, you know gate fortress you're in and you know it goes back from the the training beforehand the letters and then it's the having checked and cleaned your weapon it's the little checks before I remember I had a sort of three point check that I would do on my body before I walked out of the patrol base every time which was um, ID disc dog tags um, make sure I had them on my um, my she wasn't my mother-in-law then um, but Bex's mum had given me a little bit of black crystal which apparently in the spiritual world is good for protection um, and I always went out to it funnily enough in the arm pocket of my left um, my left shoulder um, she always jokes she was she had given me four um, <laughs> of the crystals now but yeah I would check that and I think the third thing might have been my um, morphine mm-hmm. um, injections I can't remember but I remember there was always this and it's all of these little routines that you have just to know that okay mm-hmm. everything's in place I can go now wow that's thank you for being so open about that and um, it makes me reflect a little bit on you know as David mentioned their confidence and, and part of the confidence model that we work with people on it came from a really similar situation in a completely different world, which was if an athlete is about to stand on the start line for one of the most threatening things that they'll ever do in their life, whether they win, lose or draw at that, that they know they've done everything that they possibly could and they've maybe not gone to death in terms of their Mm. scenario planning, but they've certainly gone and, and had an attempt at that which is something that you describe so intricately um, and the scale of which most of us can't even probably imagine, um, that in sport we do pretty well on a lot of occasions, but we find in a, in a business sense is not necessarily done so well in terms of really going there into those things and you know doing that pre-mortem type event to, to understand it. Mm. so there you are you're walking out and that day comes that that you are on patrol Mm. um talk us through the 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 steps and and the day so 16th of june 2010 so we're coming up to um some people will call it my life day um one of my friends he's a yorkshireman um, so he's quite blunt, calls it my bangiversary. Um, <laughs> so I'll get a message from him in a few days' time. <laughs> um, the unit was in a bad place at that time. I think by then we'd just lost our sixth man in the unit. Luckily, within my troop, we'd had a couple of casualties. Um, my troop sergeant, Lee, had been shot three times. Um, but luckily... Um, relative flesh wounds so although he wasn't coming back out to theatre he was good he was surviving one of the other guys had been shot but come back out to theatre so 
um, went through his arm and bounced off a ceramic plate um, covering his lung and he was the only guy that had that plate in place in the um, in the team we all had them in afterwards but wow. um, yeah a bit of luck there and then another guy had seen a suicide explosion and got a little bit of frag from that but come back in so relatively unscathed um, compared to you know the troop in the next patrol base down who lost two guys in three days I think it was you know, two consecutive patrols they had a day off patrolling after losing one guy then went back out on a you know if you like a getting back on the horse patrol and lost another guy in almost identical circumstances and it was starting to affect morale and what's interesting now I've still got my journal and I've never kept a journal really for any time in my life before but I did out there and it was um, I found it very cathartic every night before I went to bed just to write down you know what happened during the day um, how I felt about it that was a tiny little thing um, so a couple hundred words really but if you go back in the 10 days leading up to this so from about now I hadn't written in that journal I don't quite but for whatever was going on I, I couldn't bring myself to do it so we were all kind of suffering a bit and um, but one of the things we realised is you can't let yourself become under siege although that danger's out there the worst thing you can do is just stay in what you think is the relative safety because um, actually we were getting reports they they know they've got us under pressure they're bringing in extra fighters they want to try and overrun a patrol base and when you're your own little patrol base on your own you're sitting there going right we can't let them do that we can't let them get that close so we have to keep on going out and doing what we do and effectively in a this is what we call a counterinsurgency operation um, so insurgents um, another word for terrorists effectively and it's all about winning the hearts and minds of the locals you're not going to win the war get rid of the insurgents the locals are and so you've got to be out there making connections with them showing them that you are the good guys and you're not going to harm them and that you're there to protect them and that's what we were trying to do and on that morning we were going to see a local farmer who unfortunately lived on a little farmstead on top of a hill on one side of the hill there was us and another one of our patrol bases on the other side of the hill it was just this Taliban stronghold where um, our troops you know, just didn't every time we went there something happened um, normally someone died so you know it was a real no-go zone and they just had free reign but what that meant was they would um, harass him a lot because they wanted to use his farm as a place where they could watch us mm. a place that they could launch attacks from and so we want to just go up, check on him, make sure he's okay, um, and you know, see if we can help him at all. And that's what we were doing. So it's probably less than half a mile from us, um, not far. And we set off, I think about four thirty in the morning. So probably um, someone probably gave me gave me a shake, wake me up at quarter to four in the morning, get up, kit on. Um, go and do a final brief we would have done a brief the night before 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then we just do a final brief in the morning, which is just double check the route we're doing, what it is that we want to get out of it, and um, just couple check a couple of the what we called actions on. So actions on a casualty, actions on explosion, which is what does everyone do? Um, and the way we do it is, um, you know, I'd say what is the action on, and I just ask one of the team. And they just run us through, we call it an SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, just to make sure that everyone's got it in their head. Throw a couple of those out there, right. Final kit check, let's go. So, it's weird, this morning, I um, I always used to carry half a bar mine. So a bar mine is um, about a metre long, and it's designed for blowing up tanks. And what we used to do is um, carry half bar mines. We'd have one on every patrol. Um, And it was in case there was a casualty and we needed to get through uh, walls. So rather than try and lift casualties over walls, we could just um, blow a wall and make a hole. And I always used to carry it. And for some reason this morning, I was like, there's no walls between here and now. So I decided not to carry it. And there'd been other patrols where there hadn't been any walls, but I still carried it. But this morning I thought, nah, don't need that. So took that off my rucksack. And then it was half four in the morning, still dark, but it was just starting to change. And so in the darkness, the way we'd patrol is same as daylight, single file, one man in front of the other. Front man is scanning the ground with a a metal detector, effectively. We called it a Valon. And he's just looking for signs of increased metal in the ground which could be a bomb really difficult task because actually the ground's full of minerals so it's always going off and it's a bit subjective you know is there just a little bit more there and it's about him having a feel for it and then he marks a lane so in the daytime he would use either some chalk powder or spray paint and we just mark a little lane 60 centimeters wide but at night he uses a infrared um silum glow stick so um it's one that we can only see with our night vision goggles and i remember just looking at the light and going actually i can just do a check i can see that on the ground without my night vision goggles i won't bother with mine this morning and everyone else had theirs on i didn't put mine on um and off we went went out first part of the patrol is over known ground and safe and we still got um, the cover from our own sentry towers so that was fine cross the road and then when we cross this main road we're then in sort of open ground and there were a couple of paths that you could take but where unless we had sight of that path 100% of the time we generally try to avoid using them because it's just predictable so we're, zig- we're zigzagging across open ground and I'm looking at these silooms following them and then eventually the light comes up enough that night vision goggles are useless um, to everyone. So at that point we stop the patrol and um, we everyone sort of lies down on the floor, looks in different directions. So we've got all round view of ourselves, a little defensive position. And then guys work in pairs, you know, one at a time, take your goggles off while the other person's watching um, that direction. Once everyone's got their goggles off, we stay there for five or ten minutes extra, and that's just to let your eyes adjust to the light. And then once we're happy, we set off again. Um, 
I was number seven in the patrol and I kind of remember getting up, starting to walk and I have no idea really about the time or distance at this stage. All I can remember is kind of seeing a, a rucksack five or ten metres in front of me of the person in front of me and then kind of looking uphill and just seeing you sort of got the dark hill and then above it a grey dawn sky and because I'm looking upwards I can just see a couple of guys who are then turning to the right and kind of silhouetted against that sky and the next thing you know I'm just flying through the air and um, everything's gone into slow motion can I swear on this? (laughs) No, I think Um, you deserve it (laughs) uh, so at that point I I do remember thinking oh fuck it's me literally those words oh fuck it's me and um then landing on the ground and everything just going from slow motion to double speed and uh yeah kind of training kicks in so grabbing my radio button and starting to send a report to headquarters you know telling them that um it's our call sign we're in trouble explosion and there's at least one casualty because i know that's me um then trying to reach for tourniquets so we all carry tourniquets on us for mass bleeding events like this catastrophic bleeds and the idea is is you know if you can start to self-administer it a little bit before the the guys get to you then that can help um unfortunately i was really right-handed you know really right-handed <laughs> uh before my incident and uh i'd packed my tourniquet so i could only get to them with my right right hand and you've got to remember we're wearing body armor and kit mm. so you're quite bulky and you can't just sort of reach around stuff you and i was sort of rolling around trying to reach these things and realized i couldn't reach them with my left hand so then grabbed my radio button again and started sending up updates to the headquarters and then i remember guys getting to me two guys getting to me and starting to give me first aid and um, a torch being shone in my eyes and then it kind of all fades from there and I'd become unconscious. And I remember all of that as being a matter of seconds, but what they tell me is actually it took them about two minutes to get to me um, because I'd sort of been blown a distance. And then it turned out it was the patrol medic who was the man behind me. His initial reaction was just to charge towards where I landed, but one of the other guys grabbed him, stopped him, and they actually got out a meta detector, cleared a route to me because obviously if there's one bomb in the area, there could mm. be more. And the last thing you need is more casualties. Um, you know, I think I was lucky in that no one else was injured at all. If potentially the nature of my injuries, if anyone else had had any injury, you know, it probably would have been enough to distract them enough from me that I wouldn't have survived. Um so yeah I think what they did then was incredible and then the next thing you know I'm becoming conscious again because a quad bike has pulled up alongside me it's been driven by my mate Jim um, and you know adrenaline must have kicked in at this stage because he says I was lying there on the floor with my eyes closed on the stretcher uh, he pulled up alongside me and all of a sudden my eyes just bolted open. I looked up and went, hey up, Jim, how are you doing, mate? <laughs> uh, he he said, I'm, I'm fine, mate, how are you? And one of the guys giving me first aid said, how the effing hell do you think he is? He's lost three limbs. And I think at that point I had a bit of a 
a panic because although I kind of knew as I think at some point they said they they mentioned it and I was trying to sit up and look and you know they were trying to keep me down and then it was you know get me onto the trailer and start getting me back to the patrol base and I was kind of talking to them the whole way back trying to tell them okay I know I'm here I know we're here and I was just kind of trying to show them that I was okay um, there was a bit of bravado going on there and also you know, there was this realisation of if I become unconscious again I'm not sure whether I'll survive and so it's that you know when someone's trying to show you that they're not drunk <laughs> I was kind of trying to do that you know sort of yeah. overdoing it to yeah. say I, I'm not going to become unconscious I really am okay and trying really hard to do that and they got me back to patrol face started giving me some more first aid so at this stage they're probably um putting on more bandages so tourniquets would have gone on initial bandages they're probably trying to put more on the medic might give me a shot of penicillin just um to get that in your body as soon as possible you've got to remember it you know these bombs are underneath the desert floor so they're throwing dirt effectively into your body and then sort of more support teams come down from different patrol bases to give you a bit of support we're waiting for helicopters to come and land and we got this message from the company sergeant major um, that the helicopter's going to land in five minutes so they start getting me ready to put me on the helicopter takes a couple of minutes to do that then he gives us a message helicopter's going to land in seven minutes and all of a sudden, I just started panicking because, you know, five minutes, two minutes ago, now, mm. and now it's seven minutes. Um, that was kind of what happened. I said about those other two guys that died, it had been very similar. Delays in helicopters landing, and they hadn't made it, and adrenaline just failed at that point. Pain kicked in. I can't really describe the pain. And started crying, started, um, you know, basically begging... Uh, buck the sergeant major to get on the helicopter with me and just made sure they put me to sleep at the earliest stage that's kind of got to that stage that's all i wanted to know was you know they were going to put me to sleep and end the pain and that was it all of a sudden helicopters there i'm on it i scream at someone to put me to sleep and kind of see the helicopter taking off or see the ground move as the helicopter's taking off close my eyes and woke up in birmingham three days later Remarkable. I mean, I'm just transfixed, and as is everybody else. And and so you woke up three days later. Were you aware that you you were completely somewhere, you know, halfway across the world, and what had happened? Um, it's hard. And so one of the things I'll say about all of that, I've got no idea how accurate that memory is, but it is my memory of it, and I think it's kind of been reconstructed over time. Um, and in a way, the first probably three or four days of hospital time are even more hazy because by that stage, they've got you um, dosed up on morphine and stuff like that. So woke up with my dad and my sister at the end of my bed. Um, first thing I said to my dad was that he needed to go and tell Bex, find Bex I think I started trying to give him um, her address um, 
and he just kind of said, just wait there a second. He left, Bex came in, um, and apparently I tried to show her that I'd lost my arm. She's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know, you idiot. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And bless her, Bex, bear in mind, we've been dating for six, seven months at this stage, of which three and a half of those I'd been out in Afghanistan and actually the first couple of months of it I'd been away loads training um, before the tour anyway and she just said you know whatever happens I'll I'll stick by you Um, and I rather romantically said well we might as well get married then (laughs) Uh, and she said yes so there we go we got engaged um, there and then Uh, yeah so I was kind of aware I knew that my limbs were missing. There was a few shocks. So, for instance, I thought that I was missing both my legs below the knee. And then actually it turned out I was lost them both above the knee. Actually, it turned out on the ground my right leg had gone above the knee, but my left leg was below the knee. But in order to save the leg, they had to go above the knee. So things like that, it was a bit shocking, um, realising the extent of the injuries. But I'm kind of convinced that being vaguely aware of them before I became unconscious kind of helped me in dealing with it afterwards. Mm. What I'd like to do now is, is almost kind of we pause that moment mm. um, and fast forward to today. Mm. And, and I'm going to ask you the same questions as I did about John 10 years ago. What are your aspirations? Why do you get up in the morning like what's your purpose in life and ultimately what I'd like to do is compare and contrast the two and then figure out how on earth did you go from I know exactly what I want to do in my life I want to aspire towards one of the most elite you know um, pinnacle of military programs one of the best examples of what you can do in your uh, let's call it industry Mm. um, deal with all that and then get to, to where you are today so what is your aspiration? What is it that you want to achieve and, and, and why do you care so much about it? So I find it really hard to articulate it concisely. But there's something about recognising, clearly I've been through something and come out the other side of it. And I see myself as being a really average person that's been thrown into extraordinary circumstances and therefore has been forced to do extraordinary things or has done extraordinary things because of that but I'm still the average person and so in that I think there's something about um, inspiring people by getting them to recognize that whoever they are they've they've got this inside of them too Um, they just haven't been thrown into the same circumstances that I have But if they can recognise that and stop underestimating themselves and realise, you know, really what what they can achieve, there's something quite powerful in that. So there's there's that bit about recognising ability, if you like, you know, uh, capacity. And then the, the other thing is really I've had to develop, I don't know, a set of philosophies to come out the other side of this and a mindset and I feel like that could be helpful for for other people and so uh, 
they're they're kind of evolving my understanding of them are evolving all the time but the sort of key themes around this are around forgiveness um taking responsibility and acceptance and they're 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 all kind of related and um i'm still sort of teasing out um exactly how that how that is but for me now there's something about recognizing the all the amazing things i've got going on in my life Mm. um you know it's not perfect um like everyone there there are good things and bad things in my life but generally i think wow i'm pretty lucky and um from there it's recognizing that i couldn't have these good things i couldn't be where i am now without my past every single bit of it good bad and ugly has all played its role somehow in getting me here and when you do that it then becomes very easy to forgive other people and go well there's no point in being angry at that person Um, and actually in a way I should be grateful whatever it is they've done for me I should be grateful because it's part of me here and now and then also being able to forgive yourself for you know again there's stuff I've done I said 10 years ago I just failed a course and you know that was probably because my ego had been too big at the time and I hadn't been willing to back down Um, and that's something I've had to learn to forgive myself about because I probably wouldn't be here now if I if I hadn't have done that Mm. Um, and I think that's all really important so yeah there's something about those three things Mm. acceptance um, forgiveness and um, I've just now completely forgotten the third thing. Acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and how do you want to channel that energy? Like, wh- where do you want to channel that I- energy? So, in terms of what I do, there's the bit about standing up in front of large audiences and you can share the story. And that's great. Uh, you give it to a large audience, some people will find it quite life-changing and I've been told that other people will go wow but then go back to work and forget about it and other people for whatever reason it just won't connect with them you know we all connect to different things and that's fine but so you can you can do and do that what I really enjoy doing is um, working with people over a, a bit longer time whether it's teams of people or individuals and you know trying to tease out of them those same things you know what is it that's going on for you what is it that motivates you what is it that you're grateful for um and you know what is it that you can do Mm. you know what is your capacity and coach that out of them and watch them develop as they uh, as they grow and do that and that's where the real passion is and it was something that i always enjoyed in the marines there's a lovely thing um about being a military officer where you write reports on uh, on your troops every year and those reports are going to promotion boards and there's something really great about writing a report that you know is going to get someone promoted and it's even more satisfying when you know that if you compare it to the last report actually there's a real step change that person over the last year has really improved and this is the one that's going to get them promoted. It's such a satisfying feeling, and I, I always loved that 
when I was in the Marines and loved developing people. And you know that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm doing now. Wow! So you, you've got this um, this moment in time uh, where where you're able to channel all the experiences that you've ever had, all those highs, lows. You called it the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, and and basically use that for good to be able to channel it into to supporting other mm. people. What I'm now fascinated about, and I'm sure many many others will be as well is if we go back to that moment in Birmingham mm. hospital bed you said it was seven seven years ago uh, nine. nine nine years yeah. ago nine years ago um, uh, how, how did you do that like what are the key things that have allowed you and enabled you to go from that moment you know having just realized actually I can't do those things anymore mm. And, and all of a sudden to be able to come out of it, to be able to sit here today and, and, and be that inspiration. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. I think the first thing to say is it doesn't just happen overnight. And what I needed to do first, I realised very quickly, was actively, very consciously and actively not be negative. So negative thought comes into your mind and go, that's not going to help me. And... I've got to find a positive spin on it to do it. And that took quite a lot of discipline to do um, at, at first. But eventually, the, the funny thing is that just becomes habit and nature over time. But I think that was really important for me. The next thing was about having lots of you know, short-term goals that were achievable. So it was being able to... I don't know, eat my own food. It was being able to sit upright in bed. It was being able to get into a wheelchair on my own. Um, all of these things very quickly. Um, Bex used to bring in those kiddie five-year-old books, how to write, and I was sitting there with my left hand every morning before um, before visiting times. And I, as soon as I could, I got into the habit of Getting out my getting out my bed, making my own bed, getting myself washed, and then sitting there and doing some of this writing, yeah. And I had to be disciplined about that stuff because it was about sort of showing that you could look after yourself. And I think that pride at that stage is very helpful. And you know, what happens is the goals just get bigger and bigger as you go. And I was very lucky. A guy called Mark Ormrod, who was another Royal Marine, he almost exactly the same injuries as me in Afghanistan but two and a half years beforehand I was actually sitting on the train with him yesterday morning and Mark had was just leaving the Marines and the day after he left the Marines um, someone got him to drive up to Birmingham from Plymouth and come and visit me and so this guy with exactly the same injuries both legs above the knee right arm above the elbow drove himself from Plymouth in his BMW up to Birmingham and just struts into my room on his prosthetics. And this is two weeks after I'm injured. And you're sitting there going, right, okay, bar set now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's your role model. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. And, you know, he just said, look, it's not easy. It's hard, but you've got to commit to it and you can do it. And if you can do it, this is kind of what's there, what's there for you afterwards. And so that was it. It was, okay, right, that's where I've got to get to. So I then um, 
very quickly managed to get myself discharged from hospital, so just 27 nights in hospital. Um, I was quite, um, I know it sounds stupid to say, but I was quite lucky in that apart from my amputations, there wasn't much else going on. So you get guys that get blast wounds to the abdomen and chest, and that causes all kinds of complications, and they'll spend six months in hospital. Whereas actually once the the scars had scabbed over, once the skin grafts had healed, right, actually there's nothing more that the hospital could do for me. So get out of there as soon as I could. They sent us away for three weeks, um, just sort of go and get your head around what life might look like, put us in a little holiday cottage, and then started my rehabilitation at Headley Court in um, Surrey. And it was just about being really committed to it, right, what what do I need to do at each stage, and just treating it like training for any other event or challenge or course, if if I'm going to do this and make the most of it, I've got to I've got to commit to it and go and do it, and that's what I did. And so to start off with, um, that's what my rehabilitation was like. It was all about the physical things that would allow me to get on and live life normally again. How was I going to be able to walk, cook food, drive? And I just treated them like a sport mm. and trained for them. Um, and you know, within a year, or actually not quite, uh, a year and three days, I was in a position to give up using a wheelchair and hang that up and just use prosthetics all day, every day. And um, so that was that. That was all the very, and it's like, okay, physical stuff done now. Yeah, I can get on with life. I can drive a car again. And then it was what's work going to look like? And I initially I'd said what I'd like to do is do my physical rehabbing, go back and do a administrative job within the Marines, for instance, at the Commando Training Centre. And my idea was I thought that way I might leave on a bit more of a high, you know, not just get injured, rehab, leave, um, but finish off doing the job that I enjoyed doing. But... Um, I started to think that maybe that wasn't the the way ahead, and because I joined as a an undergraduate, I was always sort of quite worried about the thought prospect of leaving the Marines and trying to go into an equivalent role without a degree. And I came up with the idea of building a house, and the, I thought I haven't got a clue about it, but I'll project manage it, and that'll give me a new skill set, and also give me somewhere to live. And so dove into that that was a two-year project from you know concept to moving in it's kind of still an ongoing project now (laughs) (laughs) um eight years on that was a grand designs thing wasn't it yeah that was on grand designs and um got to the end of that i moved into the house and two days later left the marines was my last day um in the marines and in that process i'd kind of thought okay, maybe I can do the construction business, set up a business there, and I ended up doing that. I had six months off, and then with the builder that helped build the house, um, just set up a little business doing extensions and stuff like that. But a small scale, not really much money in it for me, and when I say not much money, at the end of six months, I think I had 1,500 quid to pay myself, so it wasn't going to be a sustainable business for me, and it was quite stressful too. 
Um, I suddenly realised that although I built my house, I didn't have an in-depth knowledge about it. I wasn't doing it on the right scale and it just wasn't going to work for me. But at the same time, some friends had invited me along to help them run some leadership training out in Montenegro uh, for a big corporate. And I just absolutely fell in love with that. All of a sudden I realised I was pulling on all those experiences of 10 years in the Marines and I was developing people again and getting that buzz. And that was kind of where it was on that trip, you know, the start of this whole forgiveness, acceptance, responsibility bit started to um, reveal itself to me. Mm. Doing that work with other people, there was this moment out there where we were doing a bit of NLP anchoring work and you know the the task was think of a moment when you feel powerful and anchor that moment doing it in pairs with other people and I'd done this stuff before and if you'd asked me you know think of a moment when you feel powerful before it would have been me pre-injury on top of a mountain with a big rucksack on my back because that was me I was a mountain leader in the marines and that's what I enjoyed doing and all of a sudden this time when I did it I thought of me I just completed the devices to Westminster race and I thought of me at the end of that race, so post-injury. And it was such an amazing moment. You know, actually, that was me going, me now. Actually, I can accept that. Mm. Um, and you can be powerful. Exactly. And then I, I had all these amazing moments. I was sitting there going, wow, I've just started building my house. I'm married. Bex was pregnant at the time. I'm out there in this gorgeous sunny mountainside doing this cool work um, with people I'd had some other pretty cool experiences along the way and it all just started going wow this is this is your life now and it's really good and you need to get over everything that's happened in the past because that's part of this now um, and that's kind of where all of that began Mm. One of the things that, that has struck me just, just listening uh, is your ability to articulate that journey uh, and, and actually talk about it. Mm. Uh, how, how much do you think that that has been part of that you know, ability for you to, to now sit here and look forward rather than you know, be concerned and worried about what's past? I think it's really important. So speaking about it professionally forces you to really think about things and analyze it and you're always thinking how can i improve the way i'm talking about it so that other people can understand and in trying to do that think about how you can make it easier for other people to understand you make it easier for yourself to understand mm. so that's been really important in terms of the the vision part of it mm. um I'm just going to come in there. That is coaching, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, and I, I, so, I guess what's interesting about that is I'm naturally quite introverted and I've had to develop my skill as a speaker, you know, literally the speaking skill, um, in to enable me to do that. Uh, normally I'll just sit there and think about this stuff but it's been really helpful to go through that the other thing that I'd say is important about talking about it is going back to those bits that I was saying earlier about the memory and how I've got no idea how accurate my memories of the event are 
but by recounting that story time and again what I've done is every time I do that it's like I'm opening up this file looking at it and I kind of doctor it a little bit um, and then put it away again but I've just turned the memory into something that I'm really comfortable with Mm. and as a result I, I don't fully understand why but I certainly think this has a part to play in it I've never suffered from PTSD and coincidentally I ended up over the last two years working with a psychologist who did my initial assessments nine years ago and she said she remembers me coming through because I was the only person that she assessed that she didn't recommend for any further treatment at that stage so clearly at that point I had something wrapped up, but I'm not quite sure whether actually I had everything dealt with or at that point I was just so goal-focused that I was just sort of ignoring everything else. But I think what happened was I had all of these goals, I got busy, I potentially took a lot of negative energy and channeled it very positively into achieving those goals. And then by the time I'd achieved them, and if you like, had time to sit back and reflect a couple of years on, actually, because of all those little goals I had achieved, I was going, oh, this isn't so bad. Mm. And so I'd kind of already dealt with it. And then that that was the point when I'd just started speaking about it and dealing with the memory. So I think I kind of managed to bypass the system a bit um, by doing that. So, yeah, for me speaking, even though I... Um, don't naturally enjoy it it's been really important for me and it's something I've learned to embrace it's a total privilege I'm so glad you you do go through it because without it we wouldn't have had this incredible experience Um, one final question I have for you is as a result of you know opening up the file again mm-hmm. um, uh, and giving us the the insight to that file and also perhaps from a couple of different perspectives as well what have you either re-remembered or perhaps even rewritten um, or commit to as a result of this conversation that you perhaps might not have had you not delved back into that file there's something about you asking bef- before about what the the vision is the motivation to do that now and related to what Scott was saying about what this is is coaching is it's still a work in progress and it reminds me again that I really need to work out how I can articulate you know this is this is a message I want people to understand and this is how I want to help you mm. well I know you've helped me, <laughs> so you're doing not a bad job there, Scott. You know you've been furiously scribbling away notes there. Uh, what's been your reflection on this conversation? As usual, I've had lots through it, um, but I'm going to focus on two. One is the way you talked about commitment, and we talk about this quite a lot with athletes as well, but. Um, when you had clear purpose and you were missing three limbs and you were lying there and you knew, you know, this was about getting better and this was about all those um, things that you've spoken about to us today, there was no talk about motivation. 
uh, you know, it wasn't about being motivated to get up and get going. It was a clear commitment, mm-hmm. knowing why you were on the journey and what you needed to achieve, and so therefore. Yeah, it's not willpower. It wasn't willpower. It's not like, oh, I've no. got to get up today. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. you talk about this is going to be hard, this is, like, going to be shit, this is going <laughs> to have its moments and all of that. But, it w- but you were committed to the journey based upon the fact that you knew where you needed to go and you knew why you were doing it. Yeah. yeah. And that it was, was the sense I got. It yeah. was almost like you had this ambition to, you know, to, to be, you know, putting words in your mouth, to be independent. But it, it was those, it, you were building the case, you were building evidence that that was actually possible. Yeah. So it wasn't this kind of grand plan of climbing mountains and, you know, yeah. canoeing down the Thames, which you ultimately did do <laughs> and are doing. It was that ability to, to get up and make the bed. Yeah. yeah. To get into the wheelchair, to get out of the wheelchair, you know that constant evidence you are building. That's a really nice way of putting it, because lots of people describe me as stubborn and use even less polite terms <laughs> um, around that. But for me, it's not. It's much more about well, it's incremental. Here's the evidence to support the next step. Then mm. you know, ultimately, I can see all those little steps. Most of them, they're going to lead to the goal, and that's why I keep on going. Yeah, yeah. So the power of purpose with commitment. Yeah. And the second is just some reflections around coaching, and we talk about coaching a lot in being those moments of of realization and turning them into habit formation. Now, with coaching, the realization bit and the inspiration bit can be, you know, it, it's it's easier to find than the new habit formation. And you spoke really deeply about, again, a, a commitment to making this into a positive from the moment you wake up almost and how you consciously and actively went through that process. Mm. And that's new habit formation. And, you know, people who go to inspirational talks or come and have coaching, but then they don't commit to that conscious active process of creating new habits Mm. um and you just sound like a superstar in the way that you went through that on the bad days as well as the good days i think it's important for people to recognize that because sometimes people just look at the end product and go well that's just you you've got that anyway yeah it's not like that at all yeah and it's the same as the olympic athlete that they see for three minutes and 50 seconds they haven't seen the 12 years (laughs) in the terrible gyms and the local swimming pools at four in the morning Uh, and the same with business leaders as well you know it's easy for them they're the executive you don't see the 25 years of hard slog and um all the things that they've had to have gone through in order to to get that um just coming back to that number one point you wrote around your kind of that is a big part of your purpose around helping people recognize that their ability and you describe yourself as an average john which you very well aren't (laughs) but 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 i understand where that Mm. came from and you know people are not tapping into that extra 20 percent that they have and Mm. i think you can you have helped even us today in in finding that Absolutely. Well, we'll we'll close it there. But another 
incredible privilege to be able to uh, have a conversation with uh, a true high performer, um, even though he does call himself average. Uh, so thank you very much for uh, tuning in one more time for, for uh, our podcast, uh, the Track Record podcast. What does it take to win? Uh, we've certainly f- had an incredible insight into what it takes for, for John to win day in, day out in his relentless way. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, look forward to next time to the Track Record podcast. What does it take to win?